This message is brought to you by House on the Rock Fellowship. We are a church that serves and cares for the Miami Valley region in Ohio. Before you continue, make sure to access the notes from our download section of our message page and have your Bible ready. Thank you for being our guest. Good morning. My name is Paul. I'm the pastor and an elder teacher here at House on the Rock. To our guests, thank you for being here. Uh, maybe you met mom at church. Maybe mom said you're going to church. Uh, that's a good mom. That's a good mom. Uh, we're very thankful that you've gathered with us this morning. Uh, my wife suffers from an ailment. She has three teenage boys and a husband. She is the lone female in our home, and we struggle to know what it means to be endeared to her, uh, which means choosing movies at our house is often a nightmare. We have a son who, I, I have three sons. One in particular stands out because he wants to watch a movie tonight. That's great. That's awesome. But what do you do when it's Mother's Day and you want to watch a good movie? The offer that was made was, Mom, we'll watch a rom-com. And so now we're desperately trying to convince Mom that Tombstone and Braveheart <laughs> and Guardians of the Galaxy are romantic comedies. This is often something that we'll say to Mom, Mom, don't worry, you'll like it. It's a love story. That's the pitch that we'll make whenever the boys try to pick out a movie. We're thankful for moms, but we understand that if you give mom a good squeeze, there's a type of story that she wants to watch and participate in and recognize. There's a type of story that mom loves. And so if you go through streaming service and you come to, you're going to skip past, you have to go past the action movies, you have to go past the, the horror movies, you have to go past the documentaries and those, those romantic comedies. That's where, where mom likes to hang out. What about you? What about, what kind of story, if I were to give you a squeeze, what kind of story comes out? What kind of story are you all about? When life bears down on you, when life weighs you down, what type of story comes out? What are the words? What are the phrases? What are the ideas? Do you live a story where you're the center of the universe? That's a lot of pressure. Good luck. Maybe by chance you've given into some of the false stories that culture is always trying to sell us. You ever notice that? They want you to believe and follow a false story, a false narrative. Because the story that you believe and the story that you live are very, very important. But the tension is, do you, if I were to give you a squeeze, is the story of Jesus the one that comes out? Because when Jesus, in his moments of pain and suffering and persecution and hardship, when the world was bearing down on Jesus... When the world was coming against him in mighty oppression, when he was arrested and he was beaten, when the world went to squeeze him, do you know what came out? It was a story of compassion, a story of love, a story of forgiveness. As he aligned himself with the weak, and the suffering and the oppressed of the world. It was a story of justice. Biblical justice. Last week we began a study. What is justice and why does it matter? And I suggested and some of you called me out on it. That if you were to take the Bible and summarize it in one word. I suggested that word would be justice. And then I said, would you give me a few weeks to make my case? So if you're here this morning and you're gathering with mom, I'm glad that you're here. Because I think you might find that a loving mom has a heart for justice, biblical justice. Because when we fall down and when we get hurt, where do we run? We run to mom. Why? 
Because like Jesus, she binds up the oppressed. She cares for the weak. To help us understand this story and where the story has a, a helpful beginning and where this story is running to within the Bible itself and where and how we're supposed to live, I'm going to walk us through some passages. Okay, In your Bible, you can take out a Bible if you brought one. They're located in the seats in front of you if you'd like to use one of those. Ryan will have some of them up on the screen for you. If you want to follow along, if you're watching online, thank you for watching online. Uh, Elena's really nervous, our, our camera woman, because I have a habit of moving all over the place. So don't fault her, it's my fault. If you get nauseous and throw up at church, well, these things happen. That's how you know you're at a good church. I want you to start in Matthew chapter 6. Let me grab my Bible. Matthew chapter 6. And let me see if I can't give us a clear starting point for the story Jesus wants us to live into. The passage I introduced us to last week was from Luke chapter 4, the opening sermon of Jesus' ministry where he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to do what? Bring good news to the poor. Liberty to the captives. The restoration of, of sight to the blind. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is how he begins his ministry. And so you can imagine as a rabbi, as a teacher, the messages that Jesus gives are very, very important to him. They embody how he wants his followers to live and the story that they're to live out of. And his hallmark capstone sermon, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, if you look right at the center of it, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus has this to say. Matthew 6, verse 1 through 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you'll have no reward from our Father who's in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. This is in the middle. If you take the Sermon on the Mount, it's the outpouring, how to live practically the kingdom of God that Jesus announces from what we talked about last week. And right in the middle of how to live the kingdom life, he says this. He says, when you're practicing your righteousness... Just be careful that you're doing it for the right reasons. And then he goes on to clarify what practicing your righteousness means. When you're practicing your righteousness, when you give to the needy, you need to do it a certain way. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. What does it mean to practice our righteousness? To practice something means to manifest something. To bring something from creation so that others could experience it. Think about, about practicing music. You sit at the piano. I have, I, have some, I have sons, they're musical sons. They'll sit at the piano and they practice their, their music. They're manifesting something out into the world so that others could experience it. It's a habit. To practice something is to make a habit of it. A habit is a little bit different than a hobby. Some of you say you have a hobby. Truth be told, it's actually a habit. What is the difference? That means that something has so saturated your character, it manifests in your conduct. That if I were to give you a squeeze, this is what would come on the outside. That when, when things get difficult and things get hard, this is what I would know to be inside of you because of what comes out of you. He's talking about practicing your righteousness. Think about this. How do you know a true gardener is a true gardener and not someone like me who just hobbies at gardening and kills plants hand over fist? Andy's garden loves to see me pull in. Yep, killed another one. Awesome. Good. Here you go. 
Some of you are true gardeners, meaning you cannot help but walk by a wounded, wilting plant and do all that you possibly can to restore it. If there's a dying leaf, what are you going to do? You're going to take it off. If the soil needs to be watered, you're going to water it. If it needs to be fertilized, you're going to fertilize it. You're going to prop it up. You're probably going to name it. You're going to talk to it. You're going to nurture it. And I would know when I visit some of your homes who the gardeners are and who the gardeners are not and those who are pretending. Right? You don't have to tell me you're a gardener. It manifests itself on the outside. Right? Right? I know some of you when I visit you. Yep, gardener. Yep, Gardener, when I kill a plant, you're the ones my wife calls. Yep, he killed another one. Is there anything that we can do? Nope. Nope. You manifest on the outside that which saturates the inside. That's, that's a habit. That's a practice. Or take a painter, someone who's a painter or a musician. They don't have to tell you. They don't have to tell you, yeah, I'm a painter. They don't have to tell you that they're an artist. It just, it exudes, it flows out of them. It comes out in their conduct. You know what's on the inside. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ. To have a practice of righteousness. A practice of righteousness. So that when you are squeezed, that which comes out on the outside is that which is supposed to be on the inside. Righteousness. What is that? What is righteousness? That's a really big, tough, Christianese word. It's a very important word, especially if we're going to talk about justice. We really need to understand righteousness. Righteousness is someone who walks rightly with God and walks rightly with others in community. That might be something to write down. I gave you lots of space, but if you're someone who likes to write things down, righteousness might be something that you want to kind of put in the glossary of the Christian handbook that is the back of your brain, okay? Righteousness means someone walks rightly with God and rightly in community. Have to be both. Have to be both. In fact, sometimes when Jesus gets the most angry, when God gets the most upset, it's when people try to define themselves by doing one without doing the other. And you want to know what he'll say? He says, you know how I know you don't love me? You don't love others. So to practice righteousness is to make the habit of walking rightly with God and walking in community, one with another. Specifically, the vulnerable in your midst. The vulnerable in your midst. Those who are no advantage to you. Those who cannot reward you, give you accolade, give you return on your investment. To love someone the way God loves you is righteousness. What it's important for us to understand is Jesus is initiating a story, a movement, the turning of a page where he says, this is who I am. I have come. I have been sent, anointed by the Spirit to proclaim good news to the poor, to liberty for the captives, the restoration of sight to the blind. It's the year of Jubilee. Everything's going back the way God designed it. This is the story. My followers are not going to define themselves by this story, this priority, this proof. They practice righteousness and how they walk with God and how they walk in community with others. Other writers throughout the New Testament will pick this up and talk about it, but talk about it in different ways, in slightly different terms. But it's the same story, just coming at it from another angle. James is a great example. In James chapter 1 and James chapter 2, James, who's the half-brother of Jesus, kind of takes the Sermon on the Mount and puts the cookies on the bottom shelf, if you will, right? These are the things that Jesus said. This is really practically how you're going to live it out and how it should manifest. So when Jesus talks about, hey, remember when you're practicing your righteousness, giving to the needy, James is going to take it to a whole nother level. Let me show you just some examples. In James chapter 1, the end of James 1 and the beginning of James chapter 2. James is towards the back of your Bible. 
It's in between Hebrews and the book of Revelation. But in James 1, these are some important passages, especially as we begin to think about justice. James 1, verse 27. If it's a little difficult for you to maneuver the book, and it's a complicated book, and there's a lot of pages and they're really tiny, um, just write the verses down later, and you can look them up at another time, or you can just follow along. James chapter 1, I'm going to read verse 27. Religion, that's a good word. I like that word. That's an important word. Well, we don't like religion. Oh, no, 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 no. We like religion. Religion in its true sense, is that which ties everything together, okay? To use it in a biblical sense, to say religion, is to say that which connects everything. It connects your personal life with your private life, with your public life, with your civic life, with your professional life, with your financial life, with your relationships. It's the web that interconnects everything, okay? So that's what he's talking about. The kind of thing that connects everything that's pure and undefiled before God is to visit orphans and the widow in their affliction to keep oneself unstained from the world. Isn't that interesting? The kind of religion, the practicing of righteousness that is good and right, you know what it does? It takes care of the vulnerable. It walks rightly before God. He goes on a little bit farther. Let me just keep reading. Uh, this is James chapter 2. Just going to read a little bit more. My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory of our Lord, the glory of the Lord. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, oh, you sit in the good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there. Sit down at my feet. Have you not made distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So he continues on. This isn't a break in thought. He still has true religion on the back of his mind. And you say, hey, you want to know how this can work out in a church service? Imagine, if you will, a wealthy person walks in. They came in. They drove the Ferrari in. They've got nice clothes. They're up to the nines. They got, they're, they're looking good. And you can see this is a person of influence. This is a person of prestige. This is a person to be connected with. Oh, brother, please, you, you sit with me, please. You sit with me. And then a poor person, an impoverished person, a suffering person, a widow, a hurting, a foreigner, however you want to define vulnerable, but someone who's visually out of place in suffering, financially suffering, and you say to them, um, sit over there. Or, why don't you just sit at my feet? Talk about a power play, right? Talk about a power play. That's not true religion. He then goes on a little bit later in this chapter. Verse 14, James chapter 2, verse 14. Same thing in the back of his mind. We're talking about practicing our righteousness, the story that we're to be living out. When the world gives us a squeeze, this is what you're to see. What good is it, verse 14, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you say to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things that are needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. We kind of have some bad programming because we, we hear faith and we, have, we hear the word works and we're like, we're not, we don't do works. We're not saved by works. No, your works reveal that you're saved. There's a difference. He says, here's an example. Okay, what good is your faith when an impoverished, suffering, hungry, 
brother or sister in the faith, no less, comes up to you. You say, how you doing, brother? I'm starving. I haven't eaten in four days. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. The Lord bless you. You can see they're suffering. You can see that they're lacking. Oh, that must be rough. These are hard times as you eat your second Big Mac. Did you see what he says? He says, your faith is useless. We show our faith by our works. And to understand works, good works, is to understand doing those things that we saw Jesus doing. Not just works, but good works. The works of restoration. The works of prioritizing the dignity of human beings. Walking rightly before God and seeking the rightness of the community. Which means being sensitive to the vulnerable in our midst. Titus will pick this up. Uh, Paul wrote his apprentice Titus a very short letter. It's less than 50 verses. It's only three chapters. It's really easy to miss in the book. Titus was sent to this church to kind of help it reorganize and reprioritize. To kind of understand what's the most important thing. And I want you to see something. At the end of this letter, and you find it, 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 it it's, it's a small one, or you can just take my word on it. This is Titus. It's after First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, 1, 2, and 3. I'm going to, real quick, I'm going to hear you give you four verses, just bang, 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 bang. This is how he prioritizes the last half of his letter. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says to this pastor is, needs to be the dominant function of the church. He has this to say. I'm going to start reading in verse 11 if you want to follow along. The grace of God has appeared. We love grace. Who loves grace? Anyone like grace? Grace is awesome. Okay? Try that again. Who loves grace? Yeah, you go. Grace is awesome. If you didn't know that, you're sad. Because grace is awesome, right? The grace of God has appeared. What does grace do? Bring salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing and the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is awesome. It's like, hey, we're walking rightly before God, right? We're walking rightly before God, self-controlled, upright, but without dropping a breath, merely adding a comma, he continues, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Like, what? Oh, yeah. Listen to what he says in chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to obedient, to be ready for every good work. It says in verse 8, this saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And verse 14, the end of the letter. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. He doesn't say to Titus, Pastor Titus, you need to make sure that music is hot on Sunday. Pastor Titus, make sure that the seats are comfortable. Pastor Titus, make sure that the cappuccino machine is flowing. Pastor Titus, make sure that there's fancy parking spaces and umbrellas for people. Pastor Titus, what does he tell him to do? Make sure the church devotes themselves zealously to doing good Works, which is what? What is good works? Helping urgent needs. 
It's paying for rent when someone can't pay for rent. It's buying groceries when someone needs groceries. It's a tank of gas when someone needs a tank of gas. He says, devote yourselves zealously to these things. Fun word, zealous. What's that? We don't know. Who uses the word zealous anymore? Right? I mean, that's a little old. I mean, even, well, my dad might have used it, but zealous. What's it mean to be zealous? You guys are zealous for things. You have things that you're zealous for. Depends on the sports season, but I know, I know, I don't watch it, but I know when sports are changing because you become zealous for certain things. That means an overflowing, bubbling passion for something. Uh, You are excited about, so excited, it transforms and changes and affects that which you do, that which how you spend, that which you talk about. It's rooted itself on the inside. So if I squeeze you, this is what flows out. That's what it means to be zealous for something. And what is this church to be zealous for? What is to dominate their story? The restoration and the care of the vulnerable. No wonder Jesus showed up and said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to anoint me, to proclaim good news to the poor. He starts out his sermon, blessed are the poor. When you practice your righteousness, when you give to the needy. True religion is what? Care for the poor and the widows in their affliction. To practice your righteousness, to walk correctly with God, to write correctly with the community is also to be very sensitive and very attuned to the vulnerable in your midst. To be zealous. You know who is really good at this? Like if you were to look this up in the dictionary, it's his picture that you would see. Like almost at a prophetic, divine level. Someone who took it very, 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 very personally and seriously when people act against the poor and oppressed the poor and exploited the poor. You guys know who it was? Anytime you're asked a question in church, what are you supposed to say? What's the answer? That's exactly right. You knew it. The answer is Jesus. Well done. You guys are smart. You guys are smart. Yes, Jesus. And very startling, living color. Two key moments that all gospel writers highlight. Jesus entered into the temple and what he saw disgusted and upset him so much that at a prophetic zealous level, he literally starts throwing the furniture around. He grabs chairs, he's throwing chairs. He grabs tables, he's throwing tables. He's chasing out people, he's chasing out animals. Guys, he grabbed the Indiana Jones bullwhip and was just like, I don't know what your picture is of Jesus, but if he doesn't have an Indiana Jones bullwhip, you don't see him right. I'm just telling you. And you know why? Do you know what had made him so upset? You have to see what it is he targets in this passage and you have to hear what he says. Because I've heard people, preachy people especially, really, really Christian people, really Christian people, misquote and misuse this passage to try to leverage me in ministry. Let me show you. See if we can push a few buttons. Matthew 21. My wife's like, it's Mother's Day. Please don't. I'm feeling good. <laughs> Ready? Matthew 21. This is towards the beginning of his, his, his Passion Week. This is, this is what goes down as part of that Passion experience. He said the triumphal entry. He goes to the temple. This is the center of worship. This is a giant architectural Wonder, it glistens in gold and marble. It is the center of life, the center of religion. He goes to the heart of of the Jewish faith. And he goes nuts because of what he sees. This is Matthew 21, verse 12. Jesus enters the temple 
drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturns the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have called it a den of robbers. Multiple times in multiple elders meetings at multiple churches over the years, very well-intended, annoying people have come up to me and said, hey, you are turning the Lord's house into a den of robbers. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. And we need to take this seriously because right now we're selling tickets for the Mad Hatter's tea. Okay? Are we turning the Lord's house into a den of robbers? We're getting people to sign up for VBS and go to Tar Hollow camp. Are we turning the Lord's house into a, a den of robbers? You have to look. Who does Jesus target? What does Jesus say? Sold and bought money changers, the seats of those who sold pigeons. Does Jesus just hate birds? Right? Like, what's the deal? Why is he against the birds? You could come to the temple and you could make multiple types of offerings and sacrifices depending on where you are in your journey. Maybe it's a time of confession. Maybe you want to bring a burnt offering before the Lord. Maybe it's a grain offering. Some of those would be very extravagant in their size and their scope. But because God has a heart for all people, he wants everyone to have access to the place of worship. And so the most inexpensive, cheapest expression for those who have the least financial means could at least go and purchase a pigeon to make as a burnt offering as thanksgiving to God. So the poorest of the poor could say thank you. Now there's another challenge. Many people come from the outside, outside of Jerusalem, outside of Judea and Samaria, places of other currency and other denominations. And so if you're going to buy one of these pigeons, you need to have your currency exchanged. Exchanged. What had started to happen? Because people like power and people like money is they were leveraging these systems to oppress foreigners and the poor. That if you want to give, then you're going to have to give based on our exchange rates and our prices. It was a predatory system, a system of exploitation that took advantage of the outsiders and the poor. I know that because of what he says and what he doesn't say. He goes on as he turns over those specific things. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. The challenge is that verse doesn't stop there. So Jesus is saying something by what he doesn't say. You have to go to where he's quoting. You have to go to Isaiah 56. And if you had to guess, who do you think this passage is going to be about? Well, let me show you. Isaiah 56. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Isaiah 56. This is what Jesus is centering on. And this is what he's talking about. This is why he's so zealously upset. For soon my salvation will come, and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the Son of Man who keeps the
you have made it impossible for the poor and the foreigner and the oppressed and the chained and the beaten and the forsaken to even get close. For all people. This is the story. We hear how Jesus is talking in the beginning of his ministry. We see how Jesus leaves. Because if you go back to that passage at the temple, he says these things and then guess what he immediately goes and does? He starts healing the blind and the lame and the poor and the destitute. And then he sends out his people to do that same thing. Be devoted to good works. Be committed to learn to do good works. Practice your righteousness. As you walk rightly before God and walk rightly before others. But Paul, what's this? What's this? I've taken a lot of classes in my time. I've taken a lot of tests in my time. And every now and then, in every class, somebody would ask, is that going to be on the test? Meaning what? Is it really important? Do I really have to pay attention to it? And sometimes a loving, compassionate, caring teacher will say, hey, FYI, that's on the test. Guess what's on the test? Guess what's important? And it's not the cappuccino machines. It's not the smoke machines. It's not the carpet and the fancy chairs. It's not the quality of the songs that we sing. In Matthew 25, Jesus has this to say. This is a little bit of a longer passage, but I want to read the whole thing to you. And out of this is even a passage that I'd like you to memorize. Verse 40. In Matthew 25, let me read verse 31 all the way to 46. As Jesus talks about what's on the test. Matthew 25, I'm going to start reading in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and before him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. He will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him. Remember, the righteous one is one who practices righteousness, their walk before God, their walk with others. The righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and, and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. 
For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, a stranger or, or naked or sick in prison and didn't minister to you? And then he'll answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, the righteous into eternal life. Paul, I don't know how to process that because it sounds like our salvation is based on works. It can sound that way, can't it? Right? It can sound like I'm going to go to heaven based on the good works that I do. I hate that language. That's terrible. But think about everything that we just said. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I know who owns your heart, who's consuming your heart, who has saturated your heart based on the overflow of your conduct. And I know because you did not care for, you did not minister to, you did not serve, prioritize, heal, or give to the vulnerable like I would, clearly I have no place in your heart. Jesus can say to the righteous one, righteous meaning, I'm going to walk rightly before God. I will walk in right relationship with community and those around me, especially being sensitive to the vulnerable in my midst, like Jesus would. Jesus can say, I can see your heart. I know where your heart is because I can see you caring for the poor like I did. I can see you feeding the hungry like I did. I can see you ministering to the oppressed and the chained and the forsaken and the forgotten like I did. I can see you embodying jubilee, restoration like I did. Well done. Come home. No wonder Jesus can say, this is on the test. This is on the test. I said that we would use the story of the Good Samaritan as a little bit of a narrative that would help us move through our time for the next few weeks, five weeks, ten weeks. If this is the thing, I don't know if we get away from it. It's on the fancy printout that we gave you last week. If you'd like one, we'll have extra copies out there. It has the story of the Good Samaritan on one side. And it has key verses that I'd like you to memorize on the back. A way to internalize and let your heart and mind be shaped to the things that are most important to God. To a way to grow in zeal, right? Zeal. Zeal for good works. If you want to grow in good works, make these things a part of your thinking. Memorize, internalize, feast on, get them on this, saturate your soul with these things. But towards the end of that story, if you're not familiar with the story, a man's going from one town to the other. Maybe he'd left church, who knows, but life happens and the world comes against him, robs him, beats him, leaves him for dead. The pastor of the local church, he goes by, walks on the other side of the street, doesn't want anything to do with him, don't want to get messed in that drama. Life group leader, deacon, small group leader, ministry leader, sees him, does the same thing. Don't want to get messed up in that drama. Goes on the other side of the road. And it says a good Samaritan. The best way for you to understand a good Samaritan is to embody any person who is the sheer opposite of what you value and what you like and what you adore. The one person that you would not ever reach out to. And this person comes along, sees the beaten, sees the forsaken, the forsought, the, the robbed, restores him, feeds him, gives him wine, 
bandages his wounds, places him in his car, drives him to a local hotel so he can find some rest, but has to go on. And he says to the innkeeper, hey, I've got to go away. I'll be back in a couple days. Here's some money. Here's some resources. Take care of him. I'll settle accounts when I get back. This is the story. May we be a church of innkeepers to whom God has said, here's Miami Valley. Here's your coworkers. Here's the impoverished. Here's the poor. Here's the destitute. Here's the forsaken. Here's the oppressed. Here's the addicts. Here's the ones who don't fit into the categories. Here's the ones that don't make you feel comfortable. Who don't dress the way you dress or smell the way you smell or eat where you eat or live where you live. The ones that the world has crushed. And Jesus says, here, Take care of them till I get back. And when I get back, we'll settle accounts. We'll get much more practical in weeks to come. If anything, we just want the words of Jesus and the story of Jesus to touch our hearts. That this is what Jesus said a church is to be about. And I give you permission, as I gave the first service, but I like you guys more. If you see me not doing these things, you are free to call me out. If you see me leading our church in such a way that this is not the priority, walking rightly with God and helping others walking rightly one with another, you call me out. You can take the chairs, you can throw them wherever you want. You can bust stuff. I dare you to try to pick up this table, though. <laughs> Thing weighs 400 pounds. <laughs> you are free to call me out. You are free to walk up with me with all the prophetic pastoral indignation you so rightly have and say, you're not leading us right. Jesus says the main thing is to walk rightly with him and to care for the vulnerable in our midst. Paul, where are the poor? We're the oppressed. We're the needy. Let's stand. Father God, take us to the place where that, if you squeeze us, the story of Jesus flows out. That as you squeeze us, there's a zeal and a passion for the vulnerable. There's a zeal and a passion to love God rightly and to help others walk rightly with him and walk rightly one with another. Give us a passion and a zeal, Father, to see and recognize the systems of exploitation and oppression that are built within our fallen humanity. It's not just an American thing. It's a human thing. This isn't political. No, this is far more political than anything we could possibly think of at a petty partisan level. Jesus, this is a kingdom thing. It's a you thing. So take our hearts to that place. May we be so, so pressed upon by your love for us, how you, you came to us when we were broken on the road. You came to us when we were forsaken and bandaged and left by the world. You came to us in our addiction, in our failures. You came to us in our corruption. And you wrapped us in your arms. Lord Jesus. And then you said, I have others and I've got to go get them. 
And Lord Jesus, you've brought and are bringing. And you say to us, as you look into our eyes, as you pay, pl place the money in our hands, as you place the talent and resources in our hands, all that we have is yours. Take care of them until I get back. And when I get back, we'll settle accounts. May the Lord bless us and keep us. May the Lord make his face shine upon us and be gracious to us. May his countenance and smile rise up to us as we, with him, through him, and by him, bring the world peace. Thank you for sharing your time with us, and we'd love for the journey to continue. If you're a guest, would you consider reaching out to us? We would love to come alongside and encourage you in any way that we can. If you're someone who's joined us today and you are desperately reaching to find hope wherever you can, again, Jesus came that we would find hope. You can find hope today. If you want to send us a short note, a member of our hope team would reach out quickly, promptly to come alongside and see what we can do to encourage you in whatever storm you might find yourself in. That's why Jesus came. And that's why we're here. Jesus said there's two ways to live your life. And a wise man, a wise woman, builds their life on Jesus' instructions. God bless.